If, uh, if you want to turn in your Bibles to the text we're going to be looking at today, please turn to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25. And so this morning, uh, we are going to be wrapping up. As you know, uh, we, we talked about it earlier in the announcement time, and I, I did a video on this and what was coming up next as we focused on discipleship. Uh, but we're going to be wrapping up our series on uh, the parables of Jesus. And this morning, looking at um, this, this final parable, it's typically referred to, as, as you probably know, and your Bibles, if you open them, may actually have this. Mine doesn't. But typically it's referred to as, as or sometimes it's referred to as the parable of the sheep and the goats. Uh, the reason it's only though sometimes referred to in that way, and that language is not any of the headings in my particular Bible, is because really this particular passage, parable, whatever, however you want to describe it, it actually is, is not fully a, a parable like the other ones we've looked at so far in this study. Uh, in fact, when you look at this particular one, it, it's more of a, actually a prophecy of Jesus. I think that's the a best way of sort of thinking about the genre. But in the prophecy of Jesus, as he talks about the future and the end, uh, what he does is he uses a parable in, in the midst of it, a small parable in the midst of it, to help to explain uh, what he wants us to understand about what is to come. And so that's the part that deals with the sheep and, and the goats. And so I want you to follow along with me as we read the text. Uh, it's, it's a little bit long, uh, beginning verse 31, going out through verse, verse 46. And then we'll, we'll talk about what I think this is saying to us today. Uh, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people, uh, he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, and feed you, or thirsty, and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger, and welcome you, or naked, and clothe you? And, and when did we see you sick, or in prison, and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you say, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me, naked, and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. And then they will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And this is the word of our God. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching and the hearing of his word this morning. I dare to, to start this sermon in this way because I know most of you do not like movies like I do, but I haven't given a movie illustration in a long time, so I'm going I'm to start with one, and you guys are just going to have to bear with it, right? Um, I'm, I'm a fan of, of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which is this, this, um, the, the Marvel movies and television shows based upon the comic, comic book heroes. 
And there's a, there's a group of these comic book heroes that they made three movies about, and there's a team of them called the Guardians of the Galaxy. Have, have any of you seen the Guardians of the Galaxy movies? All right, I got a few hands in the room. Anyway, I think probably the best way to describe the Guardians of the Galaxy is they're, they're kind of like, all right, let me, all right, this will age us a little bit. Like, how many of you were fans of the television show The A-Team? More of you. Okay, all right. Okay, so, so the Guardians of the Galaxy are kind of like this galactic A-Team. They're made up of a bunch of aliens, and, and they help, you know, out different planets and all this kind of stuff. Most of them are aliens. One's half alien, half human, and all of this. But anyway... One of the characters is a character by the name of Dax, or Drax, is it Drax, the Destroyer. And Drax the Destroyer, as you can imagine based on that name, he's called the Destroyer. He is a, he is a menacing figure, he is. And, and he's, he's, he's big and he's muscular and he's strong and powerful and just kind of creepy looking, just the way he looks. But Drax the Destroyer is also the, the comedic relief of, of all of the, the Guardians of the Galaxy. And the reason for that is because he comes from a species of aliens that has no perception of figurative language. In other words, he can only understand literal language. So he never understands metaphors, he never understands analogies, he never understands figurative speech in any kind of way. And there's a scene in the first of the Guardians of the Galaxy movie where they, they kind of come together as a team, they form their team, and one of the team members says a metaphor to him, and he doesn't get it. And then another team member makes this statement, he comes from a species that doesn't get metaphors. And then he says this, metaphors go over his head. And Dax the Destroyer, he responds by saying this, he says, nothing goes over my head, my reflexes are too fast, and I will catch it. You get the point of this? So everything is literal. So throughout all the Guardians of the Galaxy movies, he is this character that is incredibly funny. And there is a very simple reason why he is so funny. It is because over and over and over again, through all of these movies, he constantly misses the point. He never gets it right. He always misses the point, right? And then he does all these funny things. Now, one of the things that you and I probably understand is that missing the point can be funny, can it? I mean, it could be really funny. I mean, with us, I mean, at times when we've misunderstood something or missed the point about something, we have laughed at ourselves or, or have joined with other people and they're laughing with us or even at us because missing the point can be funny. But also, missing the point can be devastating. Missing the point can be detrimental. Missing the point can mean that you miss something that you absolutely need to know correctly. Now, I begin in this way because I think when it comes to this passage, parable, this is one of the things I don't want to happen here. I don't want anyone who is listening to this sermon to miss Jesus' points. Because if we miss what he is saying here, I think this could be, it could be devastating to what, what, what really is eternal life, what really is salvation, and what really is awaiting us. Now, there, there, there are two ways that I want to talk about this, and, and two things that I don't want any of us to miss as we examine this passage. The first of them is I, I don't want us to miss the warning, because I really do believe this passage can serve as that, as a warning. But the second thing that I don't want us to miss, and this is as important or maybe even more so than the first, because if we don't get the second thing correct, we're not going to get the first thing. And that is 
that we don't miss the meaning of it, okay? And I think a lot of people do. A lot of people misunderstand this passage, and I don't want us to today. So we begin by talking a little bit about the warning, something that I don't want us to miss. Let's not miss the warning. And, and the warning is a, it's a, it's a very simple one that I think most of us who are gathered here today understand it because most of us are, are in the church, most of us are believers in Christ, most of us will get this, but maybe there are some here who don't. And maybe there are some who are watching by live stream who don't. And maybe there are some in your lives as you interact with them who don't get this. And that is, there is a warning that there is going to be a final judgment. That there is going to be a final judgment, okay? In fact, as I look at the heading in my English Standard Bible of this particular text, it doesn't say the parable of the sheep and the goats. It actually says a final judgment. Because that is what Jesus is addressing. He is addressing the final judgment here. And there are, I will tell you, there are an awful lot of people who don't get this anymore who don't think this anymore, who don't think in, in the way, I mean, I think years ago, it was a sense of, that everybody in one kind of way thought that there was, there, was, there was a heaven, there was a hell, there were these things. They may not have known how to get there or anything like that, but that's, that's not something that you and I can just assume anymore to be true, right? It's, it's part of the reason why I think we, we see, I mean, if you think about like these instances that, are, that occur over and over and over again, uh, I mean, all the time of people going out and just shooting up a bunch of people and then killing themselves. And I do, I think that's an indication of evil. I think it's an indication of mental illness. I think it's an indication of all kinds of things. But I also think it's an indication of this. People are doing that because they think they are somehow avoiding justice. I'm going to hurt a bunch of people and I'm going to take myself out. And it's going to be over and done. Because people don't think a lot about, well, what's next? Is there more that's next, right? Is there more to life than just this life and then you die and that's it? Eyes closed, everything's done. Are those, and excuse me, and I imagine that many of you have interacted with people like this as well, who think, well, if there is more, then it's just going to be this, this wondrous, glorious, blessed thing that everybody's going to be there. I mean, everybody. And then if it gets tweaked just a little bit, it'll be this. Well, everybody just tries a little bit to be good, you know. But that is clearly not what the Scripture teaches, and it is not what Jesus teaches here. If you note the first few verses in this, beginning verse 31, going down through verse 30, 33, it says, When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, when He sits on His glorious throne, before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Now this is the part of this that has the parabolic section of it, but it, it is a pretty cl clear and straightforward statement that deals with what is coming. And what Jesus does at the beginning of this is he talks about himself here, the Son of Man, that's, that's who Jesus is. But he's, he's using, I think, reference to the, the, some of those powerful images of the Son of Man that's found in Daniel chapter 7. And he's using that imagery here. And he basically says, when the Son of Man comes in glory with all of his angels. He's describing that, that final day when he returns to the world in power and in glory. And in something that everyone will see. There's no missing this, right? I mean, I'm, I'm telling you, 
If you see the sky broken open and, and the Son of Man returns and there are all these angels, all the angels are with them, I promise you, you will not miss this. And he comes in power. And it says he's seated on his glorious throne, which gives indication of what the, the parable, I mean, the passage parable, please, if I, if I say either one of those words, you know what I mean. But it talks about him as king and judge, right? Now, if you think about him in this way, as he's presented in this way, that he will come in power and might, we begin to see something of the difference between his first coming and his second coming, right? When he comes the first time, he comes in humility. He comes as a suffering servant. But when he comes the second time, he comes in glory. And he comes to judge. And the text says when he sits on this glorious throne, what he's going to do is he's going to gather and it says all the nations, right? And I typically don't do this with you, but I'm going to do it today just to give you a, a, a connecting point. When it says all of the nations, that's the Greek words, which I don't usually use a lot in, this, in, in sermons, but it's pantata ethne. And I've said these before. Many of you probably know those words. And the reason you probably know the words panta all ta the ethne, all the ethne, all the ethnicity, all the people groupings, all the diversity, the ethnic diversity, all the, pe- the, 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 um, uh, the, the state, the nation states of the world. It's, it's basically a way of speaking to everyone without exception, okay? Without exception. Pantata ethne, and he will gather all of them around. That's what it says. Now, the reason I'm telling you what the Greek is there is because th- that Greek language is actually used in a couple of chapters over. It's used in the Great Commission. And you may remember in the Great Commission, here's, here's what it says. Right before giving the Great Commission, which is go and make disciples, right? Right before giving that, Jesus actually says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. All authority. This is because of the life and death and resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Because of who he is and because of his work, all authority has been given to him. And he ascends into heaven and he takes his rightful place at the right hand of God. Remember that? Which means something that we can kind of forget at times because of the, the things we see in the world around us. Which is this, that Jesus right now has all authority. Right now. He is reigning and ruling over this world right now. His purposes are being carried out right now. Before he ascended with all authority, he says to his disciples, go and make disciples panta ta ethne. Now in my English standard version, it just translates it, go and make disciples of all nations. In the Greek, it's literally go and make nations of all the nations, okay? It's the same as this text. Now, here's the thing that I want you to think about. is you make a connection then between the ascension of Jesus and the return of Jesus, okay? I mean, the order in the Bible is 25 to 28, but I want you to think about it in terms of the order of the flow of time. Because what he's saying is, I now have all authority. All of it is mine. Now, here's your mandate. Go and you make disciples. You call people to me and to be followers of me and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Okay? 
And this time of God's and Jesus' sovereign rule over all things is this time in which he's carrying out that purpose of making disciples. Then the one who has all authority, even now, is going to return one day. And I imagine, I know I do, I hope that day is soon and very soon. And he is going to part the sky and come and he's going to show us all of that authority. And he is going to call all the nations, Ponta Thai Ethne, before him. And what the text says is he's going to separate. He's going to separate. Okay? And that's when he uses the parable. And it's the parable of the shepherd and the sheep and the goats. And part of the reason for using this parable is because this is, it's illustrative here. I mean, I've told you that sometimes in parables, Jesus actually uses them and they confuse particular people. This, this parable would not have done that. This would have been a parable that people would have understood. They would have gotten it. They would have, their, their minds would have been like, oh yeah, I know what that is. And it is that shepherds would oftentimes have mixed flock. And the flock would be made up of sheep and goats. But the thing about the, the shepherd with his sheep and goats is that when it came to evening, he would actually have to separate the sheep from the goats. And the reason for that is because of the needs of the two, of the, of the, the goats, they would require shelter and more warmth. The sheep would, would prefer the, the open air. And so there would be a separation of the two. Jesus is using that imagery to help us to think about, all right, there is going to be when, when that day comes, there is going to be a separation. Now, he talks about, and, and you know, I, 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 um, this is the, the, in antiquity, this would often be thought of this way. Um, and, and it doesn't mean anything. I, I want to make sure you understand. I've had somebody talk to me about this, that there's something negative about being left-handed. Please don't, please don't think that. My, my son is left-handed. Probably many of you are left-handed. But in antiquity, what, what they would have thought is that the side of favor is the right side. Okay. So he takes the sheep, and, and as you probably already know, the sheep represent throughout the Bible, and certainly in the New Testament, certainly we see this throughout the Gospels, they represent God's people. Okay. They would represent the church. And he separates them to the side of favor. The goats, on the other hand, would at times in the Bible represent sin and even evil. And they are on his left. Now Jesus here, he doesn't leave this just in, in the form of a, a parable. He actually specifically explains what that means. This is like, this is what is going to happen when he returns. And it says this, this is, this is verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right... Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Okay? But then he also addresses a little further down those on the left, verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, notice what's going on here. There is not only a separation, a, a judgment that is taking place, but then a judgment that is taking place where, where those who have been placed on the right are invited to come, and it says that there is a kingdom that has been prepared for them before the foundation of the world, and they are invited into that. And those that were placed on the left 
They're not told to come, they're told to depart. Notice that. And they're told to depart because they are cursed. And then they are cursed into an eternal fire. And it says this is particularly prepared for the devil and his fallen angels. And it speaks to what a, what a denial of God is it's really all about. It's, it's not only denying God and who he is, it is it's following evil. And then in verse 46, he brings all this together. And these will go away. He's talking about those on the left. These will go away into eternal punishment. But the righteous into eternal life. Now, what he is describing here, right, is not only that there will be a warning, or that the, the warning that there will be a judgment, he is also describing the only two, hear me, the only two destinations for all of humanity. The only two. There's no equivocation here. There's no hesitancy here. It's, it's straightforward. There is eternal life. And there is eternal punishment. There is a life eternal with God. A life of hope and blessedness and peace and joy. And there is an eternal punishment. An eternal punishment. And earlier he describes this when he's describing what is really hell as an eternal fire. I've mentioned to you in, in the course of some of these sermons even that's talked about this and talked about the reality of hell and the imagery of hell and all those kind of things. That, that no one really knows that whether this language is literal or figurative. And, and ultimately, I don't know if that matters that much as long as if you think it is figurative, you don't m treat that as if it's nothing. Because that is not how figurative language is used here. If it is figurative, then what is happening is Jesus is basically saying of hell, let me tell you about one of the worst imaginable forms of suffering an unquenching fire and that's your reality now a couple of weeks ago and I got a, I got a good bit of, of comments on this and I'm, I'm thankful for that and and I, I promise you promise you I'm, I'm not the kind of person that avoids hard passages in the Bible I don't I, I think about and pray about over lengths of time, what am I going to preach to the old Cutler that I think is best at old Cutler? Uh, and I preach those passages. And a few, few weeks ago, I talked about hell and the seriousness of hell, and I made a statement about how we don't, you know, within the church oftentimes, we don't talk about this. I have, I have no fear of talking about this because Jesus so clearly talks about this. And so clearly wants us to know that our eternal destiny is dependent upon understanding how to respond to him. And there's only two places that we're going to go. And so I want to I take away all of the sort of nonsense that kind of gets in our thinking about, well, there's no more. Yes, there is. Or that everyone's going to go there. No, you're not. 
Everyone is not going to go to heaven when you die. And you're going to heaven is contingent upon something, right? And this is a warning I don't want anyone here to miss. There is a heaven and there is a hell. You know, the, the Bible is full of encouragements to respond to God. I mean, there's so many, and you know this, there's so many beautiful, wonderful things that speaks of the character of God and the, the work of God, and all these things are sweet and dear and beautiful. But the Bible also gives stern warnings, and it does it often. If you don't turn to him and surrender, your eternity is not heaven, but it is hell. Now, that leads into the second thing I don't want you to miss, which is the meaning of this passage in parable. And missing this, I, I think, can be the cause of us thinking that our salvation, our place in heaven, is dependent simply and only upon our good works. Or, I remember when I was a young man, I used to think this about this passage, that we are saved by our social action. Or, we are saved by social justice. Okay? And Jesus is removed from that. It's just these acts in this regard. Now, I'm going to press against that. Now, before I press against it from this text, I want to make sure you don't hear me saying what I am not saying. (laughs) The Bible is very clear that as believers in Jesus Christ, we are called to have a heart and compassion and care for the needy and the broken and the impoverished. We are. We see this in the example of Jesus himself, who was compassionate towards the needy and the hurting and the poor. We see it in the call upon us to love our neighbors, and that word neighbor is a broad word, speaks to everyone, love our neighbor as ourselves. We see it in the parable that we've looked at here of the good Samaritan, and the Samaritan being, I mean, pretty much dead and being cared for, and that being held up as a model and example We see it in Galatians chapter 6 where there Paul tells the church that if you have the opportunity, be good to everyone, everyone. And then it narrows it down, especially those of the household of faith. So do not hear me preach this, this part of this sermon and think that I am saying that you and I aren't called to care for the needy and the poor and the broken. In fact, I do think this parable and passage actually deals with that in some way. But not in the way of thinking that our salvation is dependent on just moving to and helping these groups that are mentioned. Now, you may say in response to that, well, how can that be? Because the text is pretty clear. Let's look at it. So in verse 35, Jesus says this, 35 down through 36. For I was hungry. And you gave me food. I was thirsty. 
and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. So those are all the people that he places on the right. And then to those that he places on the left, down in verse 42, it says in 43, it says, For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me, welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Now, it's easy to look at those two parts and go, well, pastor, you got some explaining to do. Because isn't it clear that here are the groups. There's the hungry, there's the thirsty, there's the stranger, there's the sick, there's the naked, there's the imprisoned. And what Jesus is saying is that I'm identifying with those people. And your ministry to those people is an indication as to whether you will be on the right or the left. But here's the question I want you to think about. In this particular parable passage, is Jesus simply identifying just with those broad categories of need? Is that what he's doing here? I don't think he is. And I think we see that pretty clearly if you notice the rest of the text. Because here's what's happening. He says this to the people on the right and he says this to the people on the left. And both groups are like, I don't know what you're even talking about. And they then respond by inquiring. And so those on the right in verse 37, 37, then the righteous will answer him, 37 through 39. The righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry? And feed you or thirsty and give you drink and when did we see you a stranger and welcome you in or naked and clothe you and when did we see you sick or in prison or visit you so they're like I don't remember when we did this and then those on the left do the same thing it's verse 44 then they also will answer saying Lord when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? They're both asking the same kind of questions. When did this happen? And Jesus answers it. And when Jesus answers it, he gives us the interpretive clue of understanding what he's teaching here. And we see the answer, first of all, in verse 40, and then we see it in verse 45. It says, in the king, verse 40, and the king will answer them, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And then in verse 45, then he will answer them saying, this is to those on the left, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these. Now this doesn't exactly say my brothers, but I think he's saying the same thing. It's just stylistically, he just removes that when he's, when he's saying this. But I think it's the least of these, my brothers, you did not do it to me. Now, what Jesus is doing here is, is clarifying something. That when, he, when he's talking about these, these, these sort of categories of, of hunger and thirst and the stranger and being naked and sick and in prison, he is being very specific and talking about the least of these, my brothers. Therefore, you need to ask yourself a very simple question. Who are Jesus' brothers? Who are they? 
without exception, without exception, in Matthew's gospel, unless he is specifically talking about biological family, when he uses the language of brother or sister, he is without exception talking about his disciples. It's always his disciples. It's never just categories, sort of categories in the world of the impoverished, the needy, or whatever. And if you just do that, then you are going to be saved. That is not it. Because what that always does, and I want to caution you against this, all the sort of good things that we think we are doing, whether they are on the left or on the right, that don't have Jesus in the center, will not stand before the judgment. Now, let me show you this so you know it. Here's a passage. There's many, but I'm going to give you one. This is in Matthew chapter 12. In Matthew 12, verse 46 through verse 50, it says this. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside. This is literally his mother and his brothers, right? And they're asking to speak to him. Part of the reason is because they think Jesus is off his rockers. He goes on to say, but he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother? And who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and brothers. He's pointing to the disciples. Here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Now, keep that in mind. We'll go back to Matthew 25. So when he says then, I was hungry and thirsty and stranger and naked and sick and prison, who is he talking about? He's talking about his disciples who were hungry and thirsty and stranger and naked and sick. And what he's talking about is something very important. It's an identity. I mean, when we talk about union with Christ, we need to understand this, right? That he is identifying with his own. He is identifying with his disciples, okay? That's what he's doing here in this text. And what he's basically saying is how you respond to them. Now, what does that mean? Well, let me say one thing about, just so take, and now I'm going to take you to another passage. Remember the book of Acts, and remember this is prophetic in a way. And if you think about the book of Acts, what did the disciples consistently experience? What did they experience? This is exactly what happened to them. Over and over again, this is exactly what happened to them. What Jesus is saying is your response to them, whether you receive and care for them, or not, is ultimately going to play itself out as to whether you're on the right or the left. Now, what does that mean? Well, one other passage from earlier in Matthew, and hopefully this will tie it together for you. This is Matthew 10. In verse 40 through 42, listen to these words. Whoever receives you receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose 
his reward. Now, what this is talking about is something centrally important. I see this played out when Jesus, think about this. When, when Jesus from heaven says to Saul, remember on the road to Damascus, Acts chapter 9, verse 4, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Why in the world would he say that? He's in heaven. Because the identity between Jesus and his people is that close and that intimate. Why would you persecute me? Now, as you look at this particular text, what you're talking, what it's talking about basically is our response to people because they belong to Jesus. Because they belong to Jesus. How are we going to respond to them because of that? When Karen and I were, were in Jackson, which was before we, we came here eight years ago, we were in Jackson for 11 years. The first, we went there at the end of 2004. 2005 was our first full year when we were there. And in 2005, there was a massive hurricane, as you know, that hit the, the coast, the, the, the Gulf Coast, hit the, the uh, New Orleans and destroyed it pretty much. And so when it destroyed New Orleans, because, I mean, the people that survived, they didn't have any place to, to go, they started spreading out to nearby cities. So some went to Houston, some went to Memphis, but a number of them came to Jackson, which is the closest of all of those places to New Orleans. And so as a church, we kind of got, got we rallied and we thought, okay, what are we going to do? How are we going to help? And we then invited and asked anyone in our church who had, had space in their home to take families in. And we did that. We had, we, our kids were small. We had an extra room and bathroom in our house. And we took a family into our home. But I will tell you why. It wasn't because we knew these people. It wasn't because we had any relationship with these people. We didn't know them from Adam. We didn't have a clue who these people were. We took them in our home for a month to probably six weeks, provided shelter and care for them for one simple reason, because they belonged to Jesus. We received them because they were his. Now, if you go back to verse 40, put that up, Matthew 10, verse 40 again, and notice what it says. Whoever, listen to Jesus' words, and he's talking to his disciples. What is he saying? Whoever receives you, you receives me. Whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. Now you take that back to this parable passage in Matthew 25, and I believe you see something altogether different than what you think. Because what Jesus is basically saying here is that the indication, let me make it as clear as this, as to whether you will be on the right or on the left, is that you have responded and received Hear me, not only the messengers, but you will receive and care for the messengers because you have received and care for the message. Do you understand that? Now, in saying all of that, I'm not saying that our care for doesn't matter. We've looked at James chapter 2 earlier today. And James chapter 2 talks specifically about our care for the needy. Those works. But I'm telling you, this, this message, this parable, James 2, all of it, it all fits in this idea that your, your determination of whether you are, are going to heaven or hell is, is utterly and absolutely dependent upon 
genuine, sincere, saving faith. And that is very much in line with what the Reformation basically declared, which is this. You are saved by faith alone. But that faith is never alone. It will move you in love towards others. And it will certainly move you in love towards those who proclaim the gospel of salvation. And that's what this parable is about. Don't miss it. Running off thinking a social agenda is going to get you into heaven. It will not. Don't miss it. You need Jesus. And when you put your hope and trust in Jesus, it's going to change the way you look at everything. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time in your word. and Thank you for being faithful to us. Thank you for your spirit and the way he helps us and guides us to understand it. Would you please lead and guide us towards truth and living that out, Lord, in a way that honors you. Thank you for your time at the table. I pray you would bless us now as we come, that you would forgive us our sins, that you would help us to respond to you with the eyes of faith to know that, Lord, you are spiritually present here. And I pray that you would use these elements of wine or the cup and juice and, and the bread, set them apart and use them for uh, Lord, your purpose in our lives. And so bless us now, we ask. And bless this time at your table. In Christ's name, amen. As we come to the table this morning, I want to...